It's great to be in God's presence. If you're, if you're visiting with us, an especially warm welcome to you. Hope you can relax and enjoy all that's going to be happening. We've been going through the book of Acts, and today is, I would say, is probably my favorite chapter in all of Acts. It has such a picture, it gives you such a vision of how you can connect with a secular world. And I, I hope I can do my best to unpack the kind of richness that's in this chapter and give you a vision of how church today can connect with a world out there that thinks it's irrelevant. So let's pray. Just to say as well, before we pray here, I really felt in my heart during the worship that there's one or two of you in this room today, and especially in this week, you have been deeply gripped with fear, uh, almost incapacitated because of the fear you felt. For whatever reason, it might be an irrational fear, it might be based on something, but for whatever reason, you've been gripped with fear this week, and I believe God wants to free you from that and that you got you know security because of God himself. Father, we come into your presence today, and we want to thank you that you're for us. That's the message of the Bible, God, that God created us, and he's for us, and he's done something for us. So we're in your presence, not under any condemnation, God. We're in your presence as those who are accepted by God and forgiven and loved. Pray for everyone here, God, from the youngest to the oldest. You know each person here, God, and I pray that you touch their lives. I pray, God, you'd help me to communicate what, as best I can what has been said here from Acts chapter 17. I pray for those who are gripped with fear, God. I pray that they would know the liberty of God by the power of your Holy Spirit. You'd set them free. So God, come move among us. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 17. If you want a title for my message today, my title is Relevant. Okay, have you ever been saved? A wide-eyed young fellow called Ed questioned me as I walked home from work. He handed me a booklet with a picture of hell on front. Sure, I responded. Once when I was nine, I was swimming in the river and I got swept away and my uncle jumped in. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, have you been redeemed? Have you been reborn, washed in the blood? What in the world are you talking about? Convicted? I mean, have you, been, have you ever felt convicted? Well, no, I've never been in trouble with the law before in my life. He looked at me as though I was speaking a strange language. Anyway, I read this little booklet when I got home that night about God, and I agreed that I needed God, so I prayed and asked Jesus into my life. Two days later, I met the guy Ed again in the office, and I told Ed that I had prayed and asked God into my life. He was overjoyed. He said, the next thing you need to find is a good body. Now I was surprised at this suggestion, but it sounded good to me. So I took his advice and went off to the local gym and local health clubs and looking for an attractive body. When I met Denise... I knew she was just the one for me. We began to date and soon she became a believer too. Ed rejoiced and told us that it was crucial for us to get planted so that we could grow together. I said to Denise, listen, sometimes this guy's a bit hard to understand. I told Ed I wasn't quite sure what he meant by planted. He responded, committed. You know, you both need to be committed. And he said, well, listen, now wait a minute, I protested. There's no need to be rude. Just because I don't know what planted means doesn't mean I'm nuts. Regretfully, I had to miss church that Sunday. Uh, early the following week, I met Ed, and he said, we missed you at church. Oh boy, God moved. He really moved yesterday. I said, where did he go? <laughs> Ed said, no, 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 he hasn't gone anywhere. He went on and said, by the way, Denise was there, and boy, she was on fire. I said, you're joking. Is she okay? He said, no, no, you, you just don't, you don't understand, Bob, you don't understand. He just shook his head. I know sometimes it seems like I have a hard time communicating with Ed. 
Now it's been two years since I've been saved, delivered, and plugged in, and planted, and committed to a good body. God has been moving in my life, and I haven't stopped stepping out in the gifts. I can hardly believe how much God has been using me. I have a new problem, however. It seems that all my friends can't understand me anymore. When I share about my redemption and how I've been washed in the blood as white as snow, and I decide to follow the Lamb, they kind of tune right out. I guess they've just been convicted because they see me on fire. Now, that's not the kind of people we want to be. It's not how Jesus was. Words are important. Words are important because they describe things. If our words are meaningless to the person we're speaking to, then the great things we're trying to describe are meaningless as well. And there's, there's the disconnect. We miss the point, and they don't get the big things we're trying to say. You know, we're believing in a God who's great, and he's got plans for people's lives. So essential that we say things about God and about his plan for people in a way that they can hear it and get it. This is where I'm going to be going today. I'm going to be talking about being relevant. We're in Acts chapter 17. This is the book of Acts that we've been going through. This is my last message in the series. Julian's going to be carrying on looking at how to love my Muslim neighbor next week, kind of along the same ilk. But in in Acts, it's, it's the birth of the first church. It's after Jesus has died on the cross and risen again. He's alive, and now the church has been birthed, and it's growing all over the world. Paul is on many missionary journeys along with the other apostles, and Paul in Acts chapter 17 finds himself, amongst other in places, in Athens. So when he comes to Athens, he engages with the culture there. And what I love here is I see that he engages with all types of people. There are two types of people in this world. People who know God, people who don't know God. Within the category of those who don't know God, there are two types of people. Those who know they don't know God, and those who think they know God. They're called religious people. They say all the right stuff. They turn up at church and do religious ritual, but there's no real connection. They go through the motions. Of those who know they don't know God, there are two categories. Those who don't know God and don't care, and those who don't know God but are searching. All of those categories of people are represented in this city. They're our friends. They're in our family. They're in our communities. God loves them. God has a plan for them. And in Athens, as in Edinburgh, we see every category represented. What I love with the way the Apostle Paul tackles this is he reaches all the people. The Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 17, speaks in a very different way to the way he speaks elsewhere in Acts Throughout Acts, we see Paul speaking to Jewish audiences. Now, Jewish audiences had a certain understanding. They had an understanding, there is a God. So Paul would speak in a, in a certain way to the Jewish audiences. For example, if you, if you look in Acts 13, you see Paul speaking to Jewish audiences, and he quotes the Bible. He quotes the Old Testament and says, the prophets prophesied that Jesus would come, and he, he kind of builds a case from the Bible about Jesus. But here you find him in Acts 17, and he, while he draws exactly the same conclusion he takes them on a different journey to draw that conclusion. He, he does strange things, like he quotes their poets, and he talks about the Creator. And he, he doesn't mention Scripture because they, they haven't got that frame of reference. And he builds, but nevertheless, the message is identical. We are committed as a church to a message. It's called the gospel. It's called God's love for humanity. It's good news. We're committed to that. That doesn't change The Bible doesn't change. We can't add to that or take away from that. You either kind of take it or leave it. But what does change and what must change is the way we present that message in any given generation. 
What we say is we're presenting the timeless message, the gospel, in a timely way. That's what we're all about as a church. That's how we want to build church, presenting the timeless message in a timely way. Now, I believe this is one of the reasons that many of the Scottish churches around us today are in the decline. Statistics are clear. Every week, between two and 300 people in Scotland leave church. Why is that? Well, it's not because the message isn't awesome. The message is incredible. And it's not because the need isn't huge. The need in a human soul has never been greater. So where's the problem? We've got the answer. There's the needs. Well, there's a disconnect. Let me illustrate it for you. You have three things. You have the church. You have culture. The church is us, okay? You have culture, which is our world around us. And you have the gospel. That's our message. So let's do a sum. First sum is this. Quick. Church plus gospel minus culture, okay? So here you have the church, it's us, and we believe in the message. Oh, we believe in it so much. But somewhere or another, we're not connecting with the culture. So what would that be? Rubbish, irrelevant. Fundamental, that's the answer. Fundamentalism. (laughs) Now, the problem with fundamentals is they're not much fun and they're a bit mental. Now, we see fundamentalists all around us every day. They, now, they're, they're full of conviction. They believe the right stuff. We wouldn't necessarily disagree with what they believe. But man, they're bigoted and they're in your face. And they just don't know how to say it in a way that engages people. So you've got church, sure, and you've got the message, absolutely. But you're not engaging with culture. That equals fundamentalism. Okay, next equation. Here we have the church plus the culture, minus the gospel. So we see this all around us. We see people who are, we see the church, and they're engaging the culture. They're doing lots of social activities, loving the city, doing things practically to help. And that's, we do that as well. We're passionate about that. But the problem is, they're saying nothing about the message. It's all about actions and demonstration of love but there's no communication of this great message that God has given us called the gospel that can save someone. So what do you have here? What? (laughs) Liberalism. There we go. We have liberalism. That's not good. The third equation is we have gospel plus the culture minus the church. This is where people who are Christians are engaging the culture with this great message. And we like that. But they're not doing it through the medium of church. This is not evil. This is good. But it's not the best. This is called... No, not flaky. (laughs) They're nice people. (laughs) Parachurch. Parachurch organizations. So great organizations like Operation Mobilization that Julian Lidstone represents or Youth for Christ or Scripture Union. People who are doing great things and have done great things all around our world for many centuries we appreciate them. Now, the reason they're doing them is typically because the church hasn't been doing them, unfortunately. The church hasn't been getting on with the job that the church should have been doing, so God ain't going to hold back, and people ain't going to hold back, so we're not waiting for the church. We'll do it anyway, and that's great, but here's the one we're really going for. It's church plus the gospel engaging the culture. So here we are. We're being culturally relevant. We're engaging our culture, but we're not engaging a culture by leaving the message out. Some people think to be relevant, you've got to water everything down. You're so wrong. And what you're offering them is substanceless. 
To be relevant, you've got to offer people the real deal. But you've got to say it in a way people hear it. And this is what I would call an effective church. So that helps you understand what we're about as a church. That's where we're going. And that's what we're about. So, and I want to say that Jesus was this. Jesus was all about speaking eternal truth in a way the common people could hear it. The problem Jesus had was not with the common people. The problem Jesus had was with the religious people. And Paul was all about this as well. So here we go. Acts chapter 17. I'm just going to work our way through the verses here. Verses 15 to 17. Then men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue, that's the Jewish kind of territory, with the Jews and with the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who just happened to be there. So here's a description of Athens, and Paul's there. He's, he's a bit kind of, kind of out of place because his mates aren't with him. They're going to be joining him after. But when he's there, Paul being Paul, just you know, it's like, Paul, just have some time out. Your friends will join you later. Then you can get on with your mission. Paul being Paul, so gripped with this message, just kind of can't chill out on the beach in Athens. He's got to get out there and say something because he's provoked by what he sees. Uh, the Bible says he, he, he sees the city is full of idols. That word there it only appears once in the whole New Testament. In the Greek language, that word is the Greek word katedolos, which means utterly idolatrous, wholly given over to idols. He was a city that was utterly idolatrous, totally given over to idols. And this provoked something in Paul. He had deep concern for them. Let me describe to you Athens in this time. Uh, it was said in ancient literature that at this time, Athens, it was easier to find a god in Athens than a human being. It was, Athens was called a forest of idols. There was just idols everywhere. It was the case that in some streets, there were so many idols in the streets, that pedestrians had to kind of work the way past the idols. In fact, the name Athens itself comes from the name of a Greek god, Athena. Now, when we think idols or idolatry, we think classic idolatry. We think of kind of uh, people in the middle of nowhere with wearing grass skirts, if anything, with spears bowing down to a tree that they've just carved up and saying, whoa, and, and offering their children to the tree and things. We think of that kind of classic idolatry. Now, we would know that's wrong. All right, just in case you're in any doubt today, that's wrong, okay? So if you've been doing that, stop it now. <laughs> now, I, I, sus I suspect that's only an issue for three of you. But you're students and you'll be going away for the summer. <laughs> but for the rest of us, we face a different type of idolatry. And this is much more subtle, but it, let me tell you, it's just as deep and just as dangerous. Secular idolatry. You see, I want to say to you that people worship whether you call yourself religious or not, you might call yourself an atheist. But I want to tell you, you're a worshiper. You will be worshiping something. It says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slave to those things whom by nature are not gods. In other words, before you started following the true God, the creator, you used to worship anyway. You were worshiping some type of God. And it enslaved you. Okay, let me describe to you idolatry in our nation. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2. But know this, in the last days, perilous times will come. Stop. Perilous times? In the last days? What must they be talking about? 
you know, you think, when, when you think the last days are going to be perilous times, you write your description, what do you think that would be? You would write stuff like there's going to be wars and massacres and killings and da, 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 da. Okay, now let's look at what Paul says about these perilous times. That's not the description he gives. Here's the description of horrible, perilous times, according to Paul. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, and proud. And the list goes on. Wow. Perilous times sound awful like Edinburgh. <laughs> lovers of self, lovers of your money, boasters, fool yourself. It's totally contrary to how God created you to be. You were created to be a worshiper, but instead of worshiping God, we've worshiped self. We've worshiped our money. We've worshiped things and stuff and life. And we've given our everything for stuff rather than giving everything to the God who gave us life in the first place. It's idolatry. My friend Mark Driscoll, when he was in India on a missions trip, he was absolutely amazed at how many idols he found everywhere. There was idols beside the, you know, people were worshipping the sea, and there were shrines to this idol, and there was people were worshipping at rivers, and they were worshipping trees and rivers and the sea, and all sorts of gods and all sorts of shapes and forms. And he was thinking, man, this is so idolatrous. And then he got into conversation with, a, with a, an Indian lady who'd, who'd become a Christian, and she was now a church leader there. And he said, so have you ever been in America? I said, oh yeah, I've been to America. I really don't like it though. I said, why don't you like it? I said, it's so idolatrous. I said, you're joking me. What do you mean it's so idolatrous? I said, well, when I went to America, everyone worshipped their job and their hobbies and their money and their leisure and their gyms and their passes and you know, their bodies, everything they worshipped. Instantly, Mark Driscoll's impression of what idolatry was was totally reversed. We think idolatry, we think statues. When God thinks idolatry, it might include statues, but it's a far bigger issue. The issue is in our heart. The problem with idolatry is this, that there's a sinister backdrop to idolatry. I believe behind visible idols are invisible spirits. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 to 20, am I saying that food offered to idols is of some significance or that an idol is a real God? In other words, it's just a block of wood or a bit of stone. Not at all. I'm saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. In other words, Sure, you worship in a block of stone, but I want to tell you that behind idolatry, whether it be Western world idolatry, like I've just described, or whether it be some little distant tribe somewhere where you're worshiping a stone, I'm saying it's not what you were created to be or do. And behind that, there's a sinister edge. There is a demonic force, or there are demonic forces at work to try and cause you to get your eyes off the true gods onto secondary things that will never satisfy but they will try and keep you entertained long enough so you're distracted long enough to miss the real thing. Idolatry at its root is demonic and it's dangerous. Now, the Bible says that Paul was greatly distressed to see this city was full of idols. He was greatly distressed. So are you concerned for Edinburgh? Are you deeply concerned for the condition of the city? We could be easily concerned for a poor slum where people are struggling to buy foods and where they're eating the scraps from the grounds, easily we could fight, feel some sort of compassion for a place like that. But how about a city that's affluent, that's got everything going for it, everyone thinks things are fine, and it's drifting into idolatry and away from God? Do you feel anything for that? The Bible says Paul was greatly distressed. I feel something for Edinburgh. 
I believe God feels something for Edinburgh. And it's different to helping the poor in the sense of the third world poor. It's talking about spiritual poverty. Our city is ignoring God and thinks everything's fine. I'm greatly disturbed about Edinburgh. He goes on and, and he starts talking to some of the kind of intellectuals in, in the city, folks like yourself. I believe he shows concern for a thinking city. Acts chapter 17, verse 18 to 21. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? So they weren't that impressed by him. Some of you might be thinking that just now. Then they took him and brought him to, meet, to a meeting of the Areopagus, and where they said to him, may we know this new teaching that you're presenting? You're bringing strange ideas to our ear, and we want to know what they mean. Brackets. All Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent all their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And we have a name for this kind of people. We call them students. <laughs> um, but here they were called Athenians. They were just interested in finding out, well, what, what is Paul talking about? But these were thinking people. Now I want to say that for hundreds of years, Athens, leading up to this point, for hundreds of years, Athens had been considered the most, intel, most intellectual center, can't even say the word, intellectual center of Greece. But more than that, it was considered the intellectual center of the world. It, was, it had the most famous university in it at the time. It was the place where Western thinking that we're all affected by was birthed. So we see Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. These were the guys who, and, and many others, were forming the thinking in Athens which touched the whole world. Now you might not realize you're affected by Greek thinking, but you are. Western culture is totally impacted by Greek thinking. And here Paul's debating with these great thinkers. So Paul connected with the people. And Paul made it his mission to connect with people, no matter who they were, whether they were clever or not clever, whether they were religious or unreligious, Paul and Jesus and the church of Jesus Christ is all about connecting with people, whoever they are. We see Paul first connecting with people in the synagogue, with the Jewish people. Then we see him connecting in the marketplace, and the Bible says, with whoever was there. And then it also says, he, now he's connecting in the Areopagus, this huge big arena. Paul's agenda as was Jesus' agenda, as is our agenda, is to connect with human beings. Paul, describing himself in 1 Corinthians 9, says this, 19 to 23. To the Jews, I've become like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I've become like one under the law, to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I've become like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I've become weak, to win the weak. Listen, I've become all things, to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. Why do we do church the way we do church? Because we want to connect with our say. So to Edinburgh, we become like Edinburgh. So Edinburgh folk walk in and they think, this isn't religious. Cool music. They dress normal. They're not weird. Apart from him. <laughs> and you. Most of you aren't weird. It's normal. You speak normal. You talk about a real God in a way that's normal, yet wonderful. And yet, in the middle of this environment, the Edinburgh folk think, this is just like Edinburgh. In the middle of this environment, they're encountered with a truth. I think, well, I haven't heard that before. 
And then they're encountered with the presence of God. And they think, I haven't felt that before. And then they see someone get healed at the front of the end. Well, I haven't seen that before. So in every sense, we're just like, it's Edinburgh. But in the most wonderful sense, we're carrying a truth and meeting with a God and seeing people touched by God in a way that doesn't usually happen in Edinburgh. Unless you're in one of the other churches in Edinburgh where that happens as well. So we want to be connecting with culture. You see, if you were a missionary and you were going to go to China and you were saying, right, I'm going to go as a missionary to China, what you would do is you would learn particular Chinese language, you would learn about their culture, and when you arrive, you would dress like them, you would eat the food they eat, you would live in a house like they live in. And then you would share a message, and then they would start to listen to you because they can relate to you. Imagine you didn't do that. Imagine you said, I'm going to China, but I'm not going to in any way become culturally relevant. And you arrive there, and you build a a Victorian English Georgian manor. And you refuse to eat anything that's native. You, you only get imported steak pies from the United Kingdom. And you always speak through a translator and you, you dress in a suit. I mean, they're going to think, you're nuts. Now, we understand missionology is you mean you become culturally relevant to get the message across. Now, we understand that going across the other side of the world. But we fail to understand that doing that on our doorstep. And we don't understand how big the gap often is between the way we speak and where people are at. But you need to know that that's not what Jesus was like. Jesus was born into a culture. He lived like that culture. He ate like that culture. He dressed like that culture. He spoke like that culture. And yet he connected that culture to God of heaven, the creator. So we are about incarnational church. We're about making God real for our culture. S.D. Gordon, speaking about Jesus, said this, Jesus is God spelling himself out in a language that men can understand. Now, Paul was, went on to kind of challenge different philosophical ideas here. The Bible, he lists there were two philosophers or two types of philosophies going on here. There was the Stoics and there was the Epicureans. Let me tell you about them. There was the Epicureans, and this is what they believed. They believed they were very materialistic. The Epicureans believed that once you died, that was it. They believed that there are no gods. And even if there were gods, the gods are distant from humanity, totally disinterested. They attacked spirituality and idolatry. That was the Epicureans. And they dedicated their lives to the pursuit of pleasure. They just lived for pleasure. Okay, so Epicureans. Sounds a bit like a ton of people in Edinburgh. Okay, and then there was the Stoics. This is the other philosophers that Paul was encountering in Athens. The Stoics, they believed that everything was God. It's called pantheism. They believed that everything was like God was in the tree and in the, in, the, in the stars and God was in us and God was in the earth. And when we die, we just become part of God and we reincarnate. And that's what they believed. They believed that everything that happens is destined to happen. It's fated. And we must accept everything that happens. So that's, that was the Stoics. It's very Buddhist. It's very uh, Hindu. And again, it's like a huge New Age population in Edinburgh. Paul talked to these people. He engaged with these people. And then he was brought before this place called the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus in Latin is called Mars Hill. This was a huge arena. In this arena, it was a court on a hill on the side of Athens. And in this arena, uh, this was a place where important matters were decided upon. 400 years before this date, Socrates was brought before the same court and was condemned to death. 
And here Paul stands before Areopagus, Mars Hill in Athens. It was the most important court in the most influential city in the world. And here Paul has an opportunity to tell them the most important message. And this is what he starts with. He tells them that there is a God who can be known. He says in verse 22 to 23, Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in, in every way you are very religious. Okay, do you think he was, think he was being complimentary there? No. Yeah. No other options really. Uh, I, I think he was. I think he was being complimentary. You know, I think he's saying you're very religious. He's, he he rec- I want to say that being religious is the first step to finding real truth. That you're, in other words, guys, you're not ignoring spiritual things. You're you're at least aware that there's spiritual things going on out there. Well done. Yeah, you're very religious. Good starting point. Now let me take you further in your understanding. I see that you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now that which you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul is starting point here is different to the way he would start with the Jewish people. When he tackled Jewish people and talked to Jewish people about God, he started from the understanding that the Jewish people knew that there was one God. They were monotheists. They believed in one God. They believed in one creator. That was Jewish people. Same with Muslim people. They believe in one God who created everything. You don't need to cover that ground with them. They're on board with that. But when Paul now speaks to a, a very kind of mixed religious gathering of people who are philosophers and how some were atheists and some believe different things, he has to go much further back and say, bigger picture here, guys. There is a God who made everything. There is a God who created. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. First step in meeting the unknown God, meeting the God that you don't yet know, but who wants to know you. The first step in meeting God is you need to believe that he is. You need to believe there's a God. Do you believe there's a God? I believe there's a God. I believe there's a God for a number of reasons. One of the reasons I believe there's a God is because I believe in the law of cause and effect. I see things around me and I say, well, what caused that to be there? When I see intelligence around me, I don't think that that non-intelligence produced intelligence. I don't believe that a, a swamp produced intelligence. When I see morality around me, I don't believe that non-morality produced morality. I don't believe that nothing produced something. I believe that an intelligent God, a moral God, a loving God, a God with emotions, created human beings in a world that's full of emotion and justice issues and feelings. And this is God. He made this. And we see him displayed in the things he's made. We see, wow, God, you must be energetic because look at this world. God, you must be enthusiastic because look at this world. God, you must get upset about injustice issues because I know how I feel when something goes wrong. God, you must be moved with compassion because I also feel that moving of compassion. How could I have that emotion unless it had been in my creator in the first place? God, I find things so funny. You must have a sense of humor. You made them. You must have a sense of humor. How could I have an emotion like humor unless it is first in my creator? See, I believe in cause and effect. I believe that God causes. It says in Psalm 94 verses 9 to 10, he who 
planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge. In other words, it was a seeing God who created seeing people. It was a knowing God who created people with knowledge. I believe in a God who is awesome, created all things. And Paul is then going on to say, listen, this God can be known. He's not just out there somewhere. You can know this God. He says, I even found an altar with inscription to an unknown God. Now that which you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. Now what happened here in Athens, 600 years before this time, um, there was a plague in Athens. And the people were thinking, oh no, what God have we offended to cause this plague? So there was a, a poet called Ephimenides from Crete. And he said, this is what we should do. We should get black and white sheep and we should let them go among the city and wherever the sheep stop to eat grass, the, uh, the kind of altar that's closest to the sheep, we'll sacrifice the sheep on that altar. We'll let the gods decide where the sheep go. So now sheep, you might know this, are very thick. So the sheep were just randomly walking around the city and some were eating grass on people's front lawns and lying down in the middle of the street. And <laughs> it wasn't kind of going according to the plan. And the sheep weren't in the plan. They didn't know that, just keep walking. Don't stop. Don't eat the grass. Just keep walking. <laughs> right? They didn't know the plan. Anyway, they, they stopped. They ate. And they got sacrificed to the closest altar. But there were some sheep that were just stopping in the random middle of nowhere place. So Epimenides and the others decided, there must be gods we don't know about. So they created all these altars around Athens to unknown gods. And the poor sheep who thought they'd foiled the system, saying, I'm not going to eat anywhere near any. I just saw what happened to Jim. I'm not going to eat anywhere near that idol. I'll eat here. They just created an idol just for him to be sacrificed there. So all over Athens were these altars to unknown gods. And here Paul was just using this as an opportunity to say, right, I'm going to talk to you about the gods that you worship but don't know anything about. I'm going to tell you about this God who can be known. Albert Einstein said this, if a man doesn't believe in a cosmic power, he's a fool. Now we would agree with that. But it's such a power that no man could ever know. And we would disagree with that. I believe in God. But I believe that you can know God. And I believe more than that, that knowing God is the very reason you're on earth. I believe that life is completely incomplete unless you have not a religious life, but I'm talking about an authentic relationship with the God who made you. So the question is, well, what is this God like? And Paul goes on now to explain, okay, there's a God. Now let me tell you what he's like. Verses 24 to 29. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. And God did this so that men would seek him and if perhaps reach out and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live, move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since God, we are God's offspring, we should not think of the divine being is like gold, silver, or stone, an image made by man's designer skill. So he starts and he says, this is what God is like. And he starts by saying this, the God who made the world and everything in it. 
he said, there is a creator. Now that kind of went against the grain of the Stoic philosophers. The Stoic philosophers believed that there were many gods. And he said, no, no, there's one God who made everything. The Stoic philosophers believe there are many gods and we're all gods. Paul's saying, no, no, God is separate to his creation. God, who is not the creation, created the creation. When I make something, I'm not the thing I made. I'm different to it. And God's saying, there is a creator who is separate from his creation. He made the world. And, and I believe God has placed human beings slap bang in the middle of the most wonderful display of his glory. It says in Romans chapter 120, it says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood by what has been made so that men are without excuse. God has placed us in this world and people are wandering around thinking, "Mm, that was lucky, look at this. How'd that happen? It's like me placing you in an art gallery with some of your favorite pieces of art. Like say you like Mondrian. I love Mondrian. Or if you like Monet or... Degas or someone like that, and you're in this gallery, and the gallery all around you is filled with your favorite paintings, and you're walking around this art gallery, and you're saying, man, I wonder if there was ever an artist who did these. And then some geek comes in and says, well, you know, one day in this gallery, there was a kind of pool of paint, and I mean, that would be nuts. You wouldn't think that. You would think, I wonder if there's an artist who did this. I, I trained as an architect. When I walk around Edinburgh, I don't think, wow, that was lucky. <laughs> no way. I mean, to me, it looks like, I might be wrong, but it looks like there were some architects at work designing some buildings around our city. Okay, now, we, we do that with secondary things like art and architecture, which are all right. But now let's talk about the world. Now, that's more than all right. That's amazing. The world. You look at the world. It's incredible. You pick up a flower. That's incredible. Look at your thumb. That's nuts. <laughs> Everything. The fly. I mean, the midges. Why the midges, God? <laughs> it's all, but I'm telling you, it's all amazing. It's breathtaking. Now, we come to the most incredible design ever, and we say, well, I was lucky. That's illogical. I mean, that's total folly. It's absolute folly. Richard Dawkins, one of our favorite theologians, said this. (laughs) He says, We have seen that living things are too improbable and too beautifully designed to have come into existence by chance. Good quote, Dawkins. I agree with that quote. He didn't, though. So Paul says, there is a God who made the world and everything in it. Then he goes on and says, as if he needed anything. So what is this God like? It says, as if he needed anything. What's this saying? This is saying that God, this creator, is self-existent. He didn't need us. And some people say, well, God made you because he really was sad without you. And he really lacked without you. Man, to be honest, we're the pain in the neck. He was doing it right without us. Things would have been an awful lot easier without us, right? So he didn't need us. The Bible says, as if he needed anything. He didn't need anything. He made us because he loved us. You know, I, I have kids. Now, sometimes they're a pain in the neck. But we made them because we love them. Now, God created us. But he is self-existent. He doesn't depend upon us. This was what God was communicating when he, he and Moses had this dialogue. Remember when Moses 
met the burning bush and God spoke to him from the burning bush. God revealed his name to Moses and it was kind of strange. God said this. He said in Exodus 3, 14, God says to Moses, Moses had just asked him the question, what's your name, God? And God said, I am who I am. That wasn't very helpful, Moses might have said. But he didn't because he wasn't cheeky. You see, if, if you say, what's your name? You'd say, I am. Stop. And you think that wasn't helpful. If you said, I am Peter, or I am Ian, you know, then that's helpful. Oh, that's who you are. But God just said, I am. I like that. It exudes confidence from God. He, just, he didn't have an insecurity issue about who he was. He just, he just is. I am, God says. What does that mean, God? What, what are you playing with our heads? What does that mean, I am? Well, he's saying, I just am. That's the meaning. It just means he is the one. He is the one who sustains everything else. He doesn't need sustained. He sustains everything. He is self-existent. He is the ultimate fact of the universe. God just is. He always has been, always will be. Just God. Incredible. And then he goes on and says, For from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole world and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And what this is saying is this, that God is this world that seems sometimes chaotic, this world that seems sometimes out of sync. It seems like so often evil is having the upper hand. The good news is this, that our sovereign God causes all things to turn around for his great purpose. He decides stuff. He figured where you're going to live and he figured you should be in this room just now. That's amazing. That's, I can't always figure that one out. In fact, I can never figure that one out. Nevertheless, I accept that and I say, wow, I'm human and I can't grasp that, but I say, amen. And then it says, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. And though he is not far from each one of us. Listen, God desires relationship with human beings. And furthermore, it says God did this so that they would seek him and reach out for him. I also believe that human beings desire relationship with God. What is it causes religions to spring up all over the world? I'll tell you what it is. Human beings desire a relationship with God. And they're just, it's like they're fumbling in the dark, looking for answers. So they do stuff because they can't do nothing. People are religious. It's, it's natural for a human being to want to worship a God. I'm going to read you this quote. I read this last week to you, but I figured it's a good one, so I'm going to say it again. This is C.S. Lewis talking about, as C.S. Lewis, that great writer who wrote Narnia and other things, he used to be an atheist, and then he became a Christian. This is a, a quote describing his, his feelings and his thoughts that were going on in his head as he was going from that, from, as he was leaving atheism and as he was starting to embrace God. And this is what it says. A man's physical hunger does not prove that a man will get any bread. He may die of starvation in a raft in the Atlantic. But surely a man's hunger does prove that he comes from a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where eatable substances exist. In other words, if I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. You were born for heaven. You were born to know God. And then Paul says, he is not far from each one of us. And this is good news. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, 
no matter your regrets, no matter what's done to you, no matter who you are, the Bible says God is not far from each one of you. You might in your head be far from God. You might in your emotions feel far from God. But here's the truth. God is not far from each one of you. He's there. He's close. He's more close than your breath itself. God is close to you. And then he goes on and says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. You see, even though God's is self-existent, he's not distant from his creation. In fact, the Bible says he's totally in there. This, this kind of contradicts the Epicurean philosophers, who, and they believe that if there is a God, he's certainly not anywhere near us. He doesn't want anything to do with us. That was their philosophy. Many people in Edinburgh believe that. If there is a God, then he doesn't want anything to do with us. Where's God? But Paul here is saying that he is near to every one of you. In fact, in him we live and move and have our being. Whether you acknowledge him or not, he has a huge amount to do with your life. In fact, your very life depends on him. Psalm 139 says this. I love this. It says in verses 1 to 4, 13, 17 to 18. O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. Did you know God knows everything about you? You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You made my delicate inward parts of my body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God was involved in your life from the word go, from the moment of conception. That's why we, we hold in great value the value of the unborn. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God? They cannot be numbered. Sorry, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God? Did you know that God thinks often about you? It says, how precious are those thoughts to me? So what does God think about you? You see, many people think, he hates you, he's out to get you, he's going to condemn you, as soon as he gets his hands on you, you're mush. Is that what God thinks? My Bible tells me that God is angry at your sin. But my Bible tells me that God did something about your sin because he loves you. And Jesus did something for you. You can be forgiven. And God longs to be in relationship with you. If only you will accept him. He says, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God? They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. God thinks often about you. That's amazing. Now, what's incredible in these verses here? Paul was quoting some of their Greek poets. When he said, in him we live, move, and have our being, he was quoting a Greek poet uh, called Epimenides. And when he was quoting, we are also his offspring, he was quoting another Greek poet called Ardaeus. Interestingly, these Greek poets were totally idolatrous. They were completely off track. In fact, if you read Epimenides, you discover that that thing, when he said, in him we live, move, and have our being, he's singing a song to Zeus. <laughs> See, we think, man, Paul, what the heck are you playing at here? That's like taking an ACDC track and preaching a good message from it, right? It's, it's just a guy singing a song to Zeus, and then you're quoting him and saying, well, that makes sense because that's about God's. So many religious people would have difficulty with this. But tough. It's in the Bible. That's what he did. Let me tell you what this tells me. This tells me that even though you've put the wrong name to the God, you might still have accurate thoughts about the true God. 
I believe in a God who has displayed his goodness and his love to a world, whether they believe in him or not. You can figure stuff out about God just by being in this world and looking at his creation. Even though you draw wrong conclusions about his name, you can draw right conclusions about what he's like and what he does. That's amazing. And let me say to you, Paul was not scared of totally engaging culture and using a language that the culture understood. As a church, we don't just listen to Christian music. You'll notice as you come into services, we play a lot of non-Christian music. Why? Often it sounds cooler. (laughs) We believe in a message. That's non-negotiable. But how we package that message, whatever that be, it doesn't matter. Who cares if I wear a robe or not? I would rather not. But I don't dress like this because it's my preference. If wearing a robe would bring more people from Edinburgh to come and hear the best message ever, I'd wear a robe. I would stand on my head if it brought more people to hear about Jesus. For me, it's a non-issue. They're all secondary things. The primary thing is, God is great, he loves people, and he did something for you on the cross. That's the message. Now, you package that however you will, get it across in as clear a way as you can. So Paul is taking people on a journey. There is a God. Next point in that journey is, what is that God like? And he tells us he's the creator. He's sovereign. He's involved with life. He's not distant. And he kind of unpacks that. And then he ends by saying this. What is God saying? Now listen, tension has been mounting. He's speaking to this huge court of people. It's a very important court in the most important intellectual center of the world. The tension is mounting. He's already said stuff that kind of cuts right across their philosophies. He's renounced idolatry. He's renounced their belief in the incarnation and all this. And he's been really crystal clear. Tension is mounting. And then he kind of, he brings home the conclusion. I want to say to you, the conclusion is Jesus. And it's okay to talk about God. You see, you can talk about God to anyone in the city. People love talking about God. But as soon as you give that God a name, he's called Jesus. All of a sudden, people say, wait a minute, oh, you can't say that. You see, God has a name, and God has an action. His death, burial, and resurrection. And as soon as you start talking about specifics, people don't like that. But nevertheless, I believe in a God who's called Jesus Christ. And I believe in his death, burial, and resurrection as the only hope for a lost world. He says in Acts 17, 30 to 31, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, talking about idolatry. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day that he will judge the world with justice by a man, that's Jesus, whom he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul knew that being relevant was not about accommodation, but rather about engagement. You see, we don't be relevant by doing church plus culture minus gospel. We just accommodate everyone and don't say anything that rattles anyone. That isn't being honest, first of all. And secondly, it's not really going to help. Being relevant is about, rather than accommodation, it's rather about engagement. We're presenting a truth and we're offering people the opportunity to find God. You see, Jesus is the last step to the big question he asked at the beginning. The big question at the beginning was this, how do you know the unknown God? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the answer to that question. There was a story in a little farming community one day of a a two-story farmhouse that had gone up in flames. 
uh, in that farmhouse, there, there was a, a, a lad, a young lad, and his grandmother who was looking after him. All his, all his family had died. It was just the young lad left and, and the grandmother. And the grandmother, she was downstairs and the blaze was raging through the house and the, the lad was upstairs. So she ran upstairs to try and rescue the lad. But in the, in the horrible confusion and intensity of the flame, she was consumed and she died. And this lad was stuck upstairs in this burning down house. People were gathered around outside wondering what could be done. They could hear the cries of the young lad. And eventually a very brave man climbed up the drain pipe into the upstairs window and the young lad grabbed hold of the man's neck and he climbed down the drain pipe and the young lad was safe. The following week, there was a court case to decide who would get custody of the child because he had no remaining relatives. And there were three people offering to be people who would take custody. There was a wealthy mayor from the town saying, I will look after the child as my son. There was a local uh, shop owner who said, I will look after the child. And then there was this local farmer and said, I will look after the child. As the court proceedings were underway, there was a w- one point at which the local farmer stepped forward and took his hands out of his pockets to speak. And there the, the, the lad notices that his hands had been burnt greatly because he, he was the one cl- clinging onto that drain pipe and climbing up. Instantly, the lad ran, embraced the man, and the court ruled that he should be the father. You see, I believe in a message, and this is the message. I believe that the creator of everything, who knows you more than you know yourself and who sustains your very life, that 2,000 years ago, we celebrate at Christmas that Jesus Christ was born. I believe that was God taking on flesh. That's why it's called Emmanuel, God with us. This was God in the flesh. And Jesus died on the cross. Why? Well, he was personally paying the price for your sins and for my sins. And then on the third day, he rose again. And he's alive now. And God extends his hand towards you today in Christ and says, come into relationship with me. The Bible says, if you believe in Christ, you can have eternal life, a relationship with the God who made you. Jesus is the scars. He paid the price. He is your legitimate heavenly father. Come to God through Christ. That was the message. And I want to urge you, while Paul presented that message to the crowd at Athens, that's the message you can hear today, and that's the message you can embrace here in Gorgie today. And I'll give you the opportunity at the end. Now, him saying this cut right across the philosophies. The Epicureans believed, live for pleasure. But Paul said, repent. Stop living for yourself. Turn around, start living for God instead. You've lived for self long enough, now start living for God's. The Epicureans believed that death was the end of it all. But Paul said, no, after you die, you will face judgment. The Stoics believed that when we die, we will reincarnate. But Paul said, no, after you die, you'll face judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes judgment. You don't die and then reincarnate and die and re. The Bible's clear. You'll die once, then you'll stand before God, either for eternal life or eternal condemnation. Heavy message, challenging message, but it was a lifeline to some. And here were the three responses from the crowd that Paul listened to Paul. It says in 32 to 34 when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some of them sneered. 
Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. And a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus, this is the the place, the big court that he'd been standing and speaking to. The Areopagus had 30 official uh, representatives. And this is one of these official representatives in the Areopagus, was now a follower of Jesus. And a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Here were the three reactions. Some of them sneered. The fact is, as we present the message, even if we are being as culturally relevant as we can be, some people will just say, rubbish. And that's cool. We, we do things in the city whether people accept our message or not. We do adopt a block, we send out food parcels, we help the homeless. And you know what? We're going to help people whether people agree with our belief or not. And that's fine. We're not doing it so that you'll believe. We're doing it because we want to express God's love to you. And if you accept the message, bonus. If you don't accept the message, we're still going to demonstrate love to you. And here we see that some people sneered, but they were not sneering at Paul's presentation. They were sneering at the message. And there's a difference. I often think the world around us sneers at the church, not because of its message, but because of how the message has been packaged. It's off-putting. Bill Hybels put it this way. It's okay for people to be offended by the gospel. It's not okay, however, for them to be offended by our presentation of the gospel. Others, it says, said, we want to hear you again in this subject. You see, they were, they were saying, this wasn't necessarily bad. This wasn't them procrastinating and saying, oh, we'll, we'll think about it another time. Let's just get them off our shoulders. We'll hear you again. But they had no intention. I don't think that was what it was. I think they were saying, listen, you've provoked certain thoughts in us here. You've said some big things, and I just can't make a decision yet. You've got to talk to us again about this. And I think that's prudent. I don't think it's always the wisest thing for, you, for someone to hear about Jesus, and then the first time they hear about Jesus, say, right, I want him. Sometimes, if you're not totally sure, take time to really think about it, because this is a life-changing decision here. And they want to discuss it more. And then it says that, and a few became followers of Paul, and one of them was Dionysius. This is one of the 30 leading intellectuals of the Areopagus. So this is the highest society. This was the MSP, as it were. This was someone who was well-respected. Church history tells that Dionysius went on to become the first bishop, the first church leader in the church in Athens, went on to become a great leader, influential leader in that whole area. Then it also says, and there was a woman called Damaris. Commentators speaking about this often think that this was, it, the way it's written infers that she was probably a poor lady. So I want to say to you here that the two people who the Bible records that responded were the highest of the high, the richest of the rich, and the poorest of the poor. Isn't that beautiful? So here we are in a city. We've got a city where the wonderful people in the city, some are very wealthy, some are very affluent, some are very intellectual, some are just normal, some are just ordinary, like us, getting on with life, struggling by, some are deeply poor, struggling with addiction issues. And you know what? Church is for everyone. I'm passionate about seeing a church emerge where there will be politicians in our congregation and there will be prostitutes in our congregation and there will be drug addicts in our congregation and there will be drug dealers in our congregation, former drug dealers in our congregation. <laughs> and incidentally, all those people are represented already. That we will have uh, wealthy people and poor people. Actually, all we've got is people. Because what we see in this, in this passage, and this is what grips me more than anything, is that Paul does not distinguish between the religious and the unreligious. He sees all people as people, 
and he knows that people need God. That's the message. Instead of saying, oh, you're Christians, you're not Christians, you're Catholic, you're this or that, it's not about that. It's about actually we're human beings and there's a God who made us and he sent his son Jesus to die for us and rise again and you can connect with the eternal God and have eternal life. Hans Rumacher said this, Jesus didn't come to make us Christian. Jesus came to make us fully human. Now, we call people like that Christians. But the point is that God, the creator, has always been longing for his creation. So will you come to him today? Maybe there's some of you here in the auditorium and you're thinking, do you know what? I've known about God, but I don't know him personally. Well, why not today, if you feel ready, why not make that decision I'm going to put my faith, not religiously, but totally in Jesus. I'm going to accept him as my Lord, my Savior. For all of us, let's be a church that is committed to presenting the most amazing message, the gospel, in a way that the world hears and understands. Not in a religious way, not in a jargon-filled way, but in a way like Jesus did, connected with the culture, said it in a way they could hear. Let's pray. Okay, just take a moment to respond, just in your own heart. There might be some things that I've said that have provoked you to think about yourself, about God. Taking a moment to talk to God about those things. If there's any particular verse that gripped you as we shared through those messages there, then just allow that verse just to think about it again and just let it impact you afresh. thank you here just now I want to thank you you love every person in this auditorium thank you you have a great plan and purpose for every person here and as we've seen so clearly in the Bible that even though we don't know much about you you know everything about us and Lord God I want to thank you that instead of rejecting this world that had rejected you came and you personally were willing to die on the cross and you got scars to prove it you died you took the punishment that we deserve for our sin you took it for us so we could instead of having punishment we could have forgiveness you took our hell so that we could take your heaven you took our sins so we could take your forgiveness and your righteousness thanks God you haven't come to make us religious come to make us fully human you've come to cause us to come alive into a real relationship with you God the creator I want to thank you God that with you all things are possible that you are God now you know the precious people here today God I pray you touch every life pray for those who are suffering with sickness I pray that you put your healing hand on them and you bring the miracle that they're looking for pray for those who are heartbroken God I pray you bring your inner healing bring peace where there's not peace pray for those who are gripped with fears that your presence would dispel all fears and they would find great security in you God I pray for those who do not know you God I pray today that by your spirit you bring them to yourself okay just while we're all praying while everyone's just making their responses to God, I want to give you an opportunity just now. If 
if you're here and you're saying, Peter, I don't know God. I don't really know him. And I want to know him. And if you're here today and you're saying, Peter, I'm willing to believe that Jesus died in my place on the cross. He rose again the third day. And I'm willing to turn from my ways and to the best of my ability to follow his ways instead. If that's you and you're saying that, you want to give your life to God, you want to know his acceptance, his forgiveness, and you want to know him, then I'd like the privilege of praying for you. What I'm going to do is this. I invite you just to pray with me. Pray a prayer with me. Make a a dedication to God. Commit yourself to him. And I, I pray a prayer, and very simply I ask you to repeat this prayer after me, one line at a time, just quietly under your breath. Repeat this prayer after me, and let this be your prayer where you commit yourself to God. Pray with me. Pray, dear Lord God, I want to thank you for your incredible love for me. Thank you that because you love me, you were willing to die on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and have a new start in life. I believe in the third day you rose again from the dead. I believe you're alive right now. God, forgive me for all my sins and give me a new start today. I choose to stop living my old ways. And to the best of my ability, I'm going to live your ways now. Jesus, I believe in you. And I make you Lord of my life. Thank you for hearing my prayer for accepting me today as your child. Amen. Keep your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer, you made that commitment, I have to tell you, I believe God heard your prayer and accepts you today. I'd love the privilege of praying for you. If you prayed that prayer and you made that commitment, I'd like just to pray for you. In order to know who I'm praying for, just very simply, while everyone else is praying, if you prayed that prayer, quickly put your hand up and then put it down again. Is there anyone like that today? Thanks. Thanks. Anyone else? Quickly put your hand up before I pray for these folks. God, I want to thank you for these two dear individuals, God, who today in your presence have made a decision. I pray right now, God, they would know your total acceptance. I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill their hearts. Let them know peace. Let them know the acceptance of God. And I pray this will be the beginning of a new life for them. I pray, God, help them to plug their lives into a good church where they can grow in their faith and where they can make a difference with their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. We're just going to end by worshiping God.